Good evening. Great to be here tonight, and I got to say, at this age, it's great to be anywhere <laughs> and on this side of the grass. Uh, just hands quickly, it's going to be question and answer tonight. It's not you're going to be sitting there watching what's going on up here. How many have heard of the Sante Raid? Oh, good. So if I do this right tonight, the rest of you didn't raise your hands, we'll put them up. But also the ones that raised your hands, you're going to find out kind of the rest of the uh, Sante Raid story. Uh, I assume here by the gray hairs, we've got a lot of Vietnam vets, air crew, any POWs. Okay, so I'll have to field those questions. Uh, what, I, what I plan to do tonight is a uh, little magic. Going to take this group back to the year 1970. It was the height of the Vietnam War. We had about 300 POWs, you know, captured down. Nixon was our president. Melvin Laird was the Secretary of Defense. And we were starting to lose POWs in prison. And he wanted to do something about, you know, getting them out or doing something because they really felt that they were forgotten. When in fact they weren't. They were working all kinds of ways to do it, but they decided we got to get very physical on this and go in and try to get some POWs out. Now, as I go along tonight, I, at the bottom is the big bullet there in terms of anything I say or it, it generates a question. Please stop me at that point. You won't have to remember it to the end of the presentation. Ask me now because now I'm talking about what you want to hear. Looks like a lot of you have heard about the raid, so I'm sure you have some good questions. And what I find when you generate that first question, it, it kicks off and now we're really rolling and now I'm talking about what you want to hear. That works very well. Now in order to keep both of us awake, going to have a short quiz at the end of the uh, presentation. <laughs> it's, a, it's a one question and it's uh, graded to 100%. So the average won't be hurt, all right? So I mean that on the bottom. Ask questions as we go through this. Uh, any good operation, you're going to have some official, unofficial patches, and, and the military guys know what that means. It was never approved by the service. Uh, the one there on the left, that's, that's basically the Sante Raider patch. Gives you the date, 21 November, when it took place, 2.30 in the morning. Pretty much graphically describes what we did in terms of coming into the prison, with an H-3 assault landing in there, I'll describe it further, but that was pretty much the way it happened, and then, of course, we left and went back. The prison was Sante, located about 20 miles due west of Hanoi. That was a thrilling thing. Now, the other one here, the, uh, the mushroom patch, our crew, which was Cherry 1, the lead C-130, we only took two birds out of the States to go over to uh, Thailand, where we staged out for the actual raid. We trained down in Florida, Eglin, Florida. And so our handlers, I'll call them that, in order to provide for our safety and there was no mission compromise, would never tell us where we were going until they had to tell us so we could go there. You understand that game. So everything was classified, top secret. Nothing, hardly anything was written down. If it was, it was put away in a lock safe. You've played that game before, I'm sure some of you. And so they kept all the different crews kind of isolated. The Air Force crews were kind of on Eglin. We're trying to figure out what was going on. What was this thing about? We were, we were the crew from uh, Germany came in. We had another crew from uh, Pope. They were here. And then the helicopters, they were down here in Florida. They were down in Florida. And the plan was we'd pick up all the other airplanes over in country, being Thailand. 
So we're figuring out, we, we knew what we were doing in terms of flying, low level and that sort of thing. Didn't know where we were going. The Air, For Air Force crews figured out, because of the uh, intel from the New York Times, this was about the time that the Russians were bringing their submarines down to Cuba with the missiles. So when you flew over the ranges of, of uh, Eglin and looking out the back end of a 130, we had the, the prison mock-up laid out there in the, in the, uh, the scrub pines of, of uh, Florida. Going over at night, it looked like submarine pens because we'd seen the same kind of picture in the New York Times. On the other hand, the 56 Green Berets that went on the mission they knew they were going to be dealing with people. And so even back then, this is the 60s and 70s, uh, embassies were being overrun and hostages taken. So they were convinced we were going to the Middle East. What we never figured out or put, you know, put together the dots, they're connected the dots, all of us had one, two, and sometimes three tours of duty in Vietnam and most of us had a lot of that duty up in North Vietnam. Had we connected that sooner, we probably would have figured it out earlier. Thank goodness it didn't. We're back. We're here today because the compromise did not happen. It worked. So we felt the treatment. You all know uh, how they raise mushrooms. <laughs> Some of you do. Oops, excuse me. On the bottom, K-I-T-D, kept in the dark, mushrooms, right? That was us. And the other one, F-D-H-S, fed on horse stuffing, sugar, whatever you want to use for the S word. And they did that. And they had us believing we were going to every other part of the world except Southeast Asia. So that's our patch. All right, that's the target. That is Sante. That's a model of Sante. Uh, it just so happens that picture was taken, it's out in the exhibit here in the museum. Her code name was Barbara. And we all trained on it, both the air crews and the Green Berets. This was about, um, I haven't figured this out yet. This was about the run-in heading we used the night of the raid. And that was taken with a flash camera. That's about what it looked like when we went overhead to make the turn around. We dropped four parachute flares, and that's about what it looked like that night. And the reason we had the four parachute flares was to light that whole area up because 1H3, one one H3, Jolly Green, landed right in this area with 14 Green Berets on board. You had a control, uh, not a control, but a uh, guard tower here, over here, and there was a main gate here, the only gate into the prison, and there was a big tower on top of it. Prisoners were held in these three buildings. This was a, uh, they called it the library. But actually, uh, interrogation took place there, and uh, uh, propaganda was heavily flowing in that building. And this was one of the guards' quarters here from inside the prison. Uh, the other two H-53s with uh, the other 56 rebrays, 20 and 22, they, they landed just south of this wall here, out in the rice paddies, to put out the two teams of uh, Green Berets to do the uh, security around the perimeter of the prison. And there were a lot of buildings around. You can see some of them down in this area that they had to get under control. So that gives you an idea of what happened. This was made, you notice I used the agency. I can't tell you what it was, but I can use the initials, CIA. They, they built this. <laughs> Did I give it away? Okay. Now this was down in Florida, and this is what the 
Sante Prison. You remember the last slide, what it looked like. This is what they practice on or trained on. Uh, they were primarily two before, stuck in the ground. Then you got the, uh, like, linen sheets or canvas around. This is, this is the wall. This is the main gate here. And then they had all the buildings where the prisoners were laid out there exactly to dimension from that, uh, that uh, uh, model we had. And what was interesting about this, even back then, we had Russian satellites coming over U.S. soil. So twice a day, we knew there was a Russian satellite coming over Eglin. In the daytime, they had to take this all down, smooth it out over to make sure you couldn't, you know, pick it up as an as a image there from the satellites. Nothing to give away that something was up as far as what the Americans were going to do. Worked well, I think. And we trained after about the first week, everything we did for the next four months was at night, just like we were going to do the real mission, 2.30 in the morning. Now, this is a quick summary of the, the basic airplanes that participated in the raid. There was a total of 116. I may have left out two or three, but around 116 aircraft. Um, we had two 130s. They were the uh, E model, and that was the ones now they call the combat talons, if you follow that type of thing. That's what they were. I'll, I'll describe more what they were equipped with later on. Uh, we had the five then uh, 53s. We now just, I say we, the museum now has just acquired the first Apple I, the only one remaining from the raid. It's out in the, in the, hang out in the uh, museum, and that was used uh, to carry the Green Berets and also was going to be used in to carry the prisoners out. We had three empties. Uh, H3, Banana 1, that's the one that did the assault landing inside the compound. Uh, for close air support, we had A1Es, and they were Peach, one, 1 through 5. You notice these call signs, uh, Peach, Banana, Apple, Cherry 1, Cherry 2. We had uh, the uh, refueling uh, uh, 130s for the uh, helicopters, and their call signs were Line 1 and Line 2. We kind of described that as a uh, fruit salad with a punch, very lethal punch. So the rest of this, uh, we'll, you'll see later on, the Navy played a big part in our raid. They were one of the big diversions, so you can see the different ones. The Navy, they, they came off the three carriers that was always uh, stationed, Yankee Station, out in the Gulf of Tonkin. And then we had various, we had uh, five uh, THUDs, 105s. We had then 10 F-4s, and they took up orbit right over pretty close to Hanoi for MiG cover uh, if, if they came up. And then we had various... 135s, some refuelers, some intel, some gathering. Uh, as I say, the total was about 116. So it was a big, a real busy night for something that wanted to be very stealthy, quiet, surprise, and deceptive. And keep in mind, if you remember back during those times, we had a stand down on bombing North Vietnam for about two years. Johnson started that. He didn't want to be known as the president was going to start World War III. And so that's why he was picking all the targets back in Washington. So that's the, what I call the uh, Chariot of Armageddon. That was the lead 130 Special Ops Combat Talon today. And uh, it carried a, a lot of stuff on board. I'll, I'll explain some of it here. Uh, notice it was very black. Even the propellers were black, black and green. That was the jungle camouflage. And you put that in a night scene, and that plane disappears. We tried to make sure if you, it was coming towards you, if you could hear it. And with, a, with the turboprops on the 130, that sound comes down and goes behind the 130. So by the, si by the time you on the ground hear that plane, it's already too late when you think about it. It's already happened. Now, uh, the nose, 
had a terrain-following radar, so that allowed us to get down to about 300 feet when we're leading in, especially the last uh, uh, 20 miles into Hanoi, because what was going on there is we were trying to stay down low below the radar and anybody else that was looking at us. So you're down in there, we were the lowest one, and then the helicopters were stacked up, three on each side on the wing above us. Now, this is the time before GPS. So instead of one navigator or two navigators, we carried three. Navigation by committee. <laughs> and guess what? It worked. And the reason it worked, each one had its own job. We had a regular nav, kept the logs, that sort of thing, the timing for the drops, get the lights on. Second nav was a radar nav. We had about three different kinds of radar on board. And the third nav was just a plain old nav map reader. And then the pilots, when we weren't busy, we were looking out, checking things that were coming in. But that really worked fine. And the reason, these are normally external fuel tanks. Well, that night of the raid, this guy was dry, and it had a, a flare, forward-looking infrared radar. So that gave you a little, little picture. It looks like a TV, black and white TV, and it's doing heat comparison with cold and warm sources on the ground. So that was good for hitting all the checkpoints right overhead because if you can see where that thing is lined and you put it right under the berg, you're going to go right over the checkpoint. Checkpoints, you were okay if you were close, as long as you knew where you were. But the final checkpoint was Sante. We had to fly right over that diagonal, and we did. We put the flares right on target. Okay, if you, some of you may notice, uh, you see the whiskers on that 130? That's the Fulton Skyhook recovery system. Now, if you remember back, the Thunderball was, I think, the second or third James Bond movie. In the very last scene, they had a B-17 rig with this. Bond was in the, uh, the life raft. Remember, he came across, made the intercept, pulled him in. I was watching that in the movie, and I said to the uh, person there, I said, you know, this James Bond thing has gone too far. That's impossible, especially with a B-17 and this jerry-rigged whiskers out there in the front. About three months later, I'm making intercepts with a 130. So... I believe in James Martin now, by the way. So anyway, we had this. The two 130s were equipped with this, and we could do a night recovery. They had strobe lights on the lift line. Lift line was about 500 feet, held up there with a helium-filled balloon, and you could pick up men or equipment there. You could pick up a two-man uh, pickup. And we had that just in case if uh, whatever we had uh, battle casualties, guys had to bail out this and that, we could pick up some of them if the helicopters and that sort of thing were busy doing other things. All right, uh, what you don't see on here, around the skin, there are a lot of sensors. We had an uh, EWO on board, Electronic Warfare Officer. Uh, he's much like your uh, uh, radar detector in your car. He can pick up all the radars that are looking at you at night, tell you what they are, and tell you which ones are a threat or which ones are long-range radar, ATC radar, or MIG, MIG uh, radars painting you. That's not a good thing. Or the SAMs with their radar. You can tell that. And then he had a whole bag full of electronic wizardry that he could deal with these different radars. So that was good. That was our defense. That was how we could get around this stuff. All right. Any questions on this? Good. Now, those six helicopters, we had to refuel en route. And this is the way you do it, you know, very carefully. But you notice... He's got his flaps down, so he was probably going about 120 knots on this picture. This is an H3, much the same as the one that did the assault landing inside the compound. Uh, notice where his rotors are. 
and, and that, that's the fuel line coming in for him to take on fuel. They could do two at a time. Here's the other one on the right-hand side. The only problem they said with this, some of the, the guys that weren't that adept, is if he would dip the nose forward, those rotors come down and slice that fuel line. You get a windscreen full of fuel. Well, we did this at night, six helicopters, lights out, radio silence, and it worked. Now, I said lights out. There was one exception on 130s, if you, if you don't know 130s. On the wing tops, they had three each sets of, they call them formation lights. They were flat, and they, they shone directly up. And they were kind of a blue, and it was strictly for what they called for, formation. So when they're stacked up, they got something to look at and follow you along. You can't see it from the ground, but the, the guy's flying. Well, these also have a rheostat. So once we got flying with the crews that were going to fly with us, we started cranking the rheostat down. So as those lights start to dim, guess what? Those helicopters get in real close to you. So you heard the expression, holding hands very closely. Turns out that was good, because as we actually went on the mission, going up over Laos into, into North Vietnam, we did go through some clouds and some heavy stuff, and they were all in there tight, because that's something, once we got into North Vietnam, the last thing we wanted to do is do a helicopter rejoin, six helicopters trying to catch up with the 130. We had a procedure to do that if it happened, but we didn't want to do it if we could vent it. And of course, we did. It, it worked out fine, and they, they learned from that. Now, this is an overhead. That first, the very first picture is out also here in the museum. It was, it was done by a local uh, museum artist. It done very good. It was from the ground up. This is from above. And you can see the, uh, these are the 53s. That's the H3. You can see it's a little smaller. And he's in there pretty close. Now, what you don't see here is the airspeed. We were going at 105 knots. A 130 lands at 125 to 130. Now, is that magic or what? It's a bunch of dumb air crew, right? We figured out that you put down 70% flaps. And at that point, you got all lift and no drag. And that kept us airborne at 105 knots. Our true stall speed was 100. That's when you, when you when they hit the stall speed, you fall out of the sky. You stop flying. The reason we were going that slowly was the H3... Remember, he's maxed out in fuel. He's got 14 combat-laden green berets. We got all the support equipment for the POWs. We had baby food. We didn't know what condition they were in for that. Uh, very, very open, loose sneakers. We had, uh, like, jumpsuits for them to get into. So they had all that on board. Plus, they had chainsaws, uh, acetylene torches, ladders, axes, anything to get into a closed cell. So he was maxed out weight-wise. But what we found out, as he got in the right position there, what was, what was interesting, two things. We usually had the loadmaster looking out the back, and he'd tell us when that bird was in there. But guess what? We already knew, because not only could you hear the helicopter, but with those rotor blades close to the fuselage, it's very thin skin on the 130, or most planes. You could feel him when he was in the right position, and he was boom, 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 boom. So when you get that right sound and you could hear it, he was in the right position. Well, I also put him in the position, you've heard of drafting with race cars, right? You get in behind somebody, he's taking all your resistance in front of you. That also worked for him. So once he got in there, our wing was kind of the resistance that he didn't have to fight. So he picked up, we, we figured, about 10 extra knots. So he actually had a little more to play with. So he was in there tight, and he had enough controllability to maintain that position throughout the, it's about three hours, low level like that. And, of course, with a big bird, if you've ever heard the word, uh, the description, uh, a burble, 
a plane about to stall is on a burble when you feel it before the, 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 uh, the lift breaks off. That 130 was on the burble. That's a big burble. It's a boom, boom, boom. But you get used to it. We had four months of that flying. All right. Uh, you you kind of wonder, why did, where'd you get this picture? And what happened? Our final dress rehearsal down in Florida, our handlers from Washington came down to see if, you know, we could actually pull it off. And after it was done, you know, any good, uh, you know, dress rehearsal, we have a, even a bigger debrief. And one of the things they said, you know, we're going back to Washington. And because of all the classification, we don't have anything written up on what's going on here. If you guys don't come back, we can't prove that you ever existed. Go out tomorrow, go fly, and we'll take pictures. And we thought it was a joke, and they were serious. And they were worried about going back and dealing with the Washington crowd, different, you know, different area up there. What we used to describe Washington as a four-sided city surrounded on the outside by reality. Think of that. Okay. Jerry 2, the second 130, it gives you an idea what the paint scheme is about. Uh, these are uh, A1, A1Es, and we had five, and they were for close air support, and somebody always says there's only four in the picture. Number five took that picture. And A1E, if you don't know much about it, it was, it was the old Spad or the Sandy, and a uh, very good bird. It could loiter up in the area for, you know, eight hours and not have to refuel. So we didn't have to refuel these guys. They were good for close air support, get down in the weeds. They, you know, they shoot, they bomb, and everything. And worked very well. They, they were good. They were replaced by the A-10. Now, this is the, the, uh, the, the tail end of an A-1E. And you can see the armaments on the wing where they, con they, they, they connected everything there all the machine guns, bombs, uh, rockets, uh, white phosphorus, the Willie Pete. And we used to say that they would drop everything but the kitchen sink. Well, we, we learned later on, some guy was in this audience, he says, just a minute, we actually dropped a commode and a kitchen sink. <laughs> and apparently it's true, because they said that we got it on, it was on from one of the carriers up there in the Gulf of Tonkin, and they had to put two on because of the balance situation. And they went in and they dropped two, and, and I, I wonder this day, there's some Vietnamese on the ground, I wonder what they were being bombed with. <laughs> Makes a good story. Now, if you've forgotten that area of the, the world, here's a little geography. The, the black area there is North Vietnam, and you can see we were down here in Tok Lee. Our route, was, a lot of the planes came out of Nang Con Phanam, the helicopters and the A1Es, we were the 130s. We kind of met up over here and rejoined. This is the area where they refueled the six helicopters. And that was, when that was all done, they were riding on the, uh, the, uh, the leading uh, tanker in formation. We came in underneath. Remember, we had to slow down and got right under, right at the right position, did a double click on the, uh, the radio, and the 130, the refueler, then just kind of pulled up and away. And that left the helicopters looking down at us with those uh, formation lights. So that was best because all they had to do was kind of tip over their nose. It was like coming down a hill. They didn't have to use that much power. And it made a very nice, smooth transition rejoin. So then we were holding hands, and then we proceeded up north. Now, if you remember the geography in that area, this whole area was a whole line of uh, six, 8,000-foot uh, mountains. So going through here, we were down the valley, so nobody was going to paint it with their radars. And it turned out it was true. When we were riding up there, usually any other mission we were up north, you know, I had a constant uh, chatter with the EWO, because he's picking out something's over here at 2 o'clock. There's something over here at 11 o'clock. We're getting something off the nose. 
This mission that night, it was all quiet. So I thought, well, he's either fallen asleep or his headset is broken. So I asked him, how are we doing? He, well, he said, it's clear. Nothing's going on. Couldn't believe it. So that part was working. Uh, for the folks there, uh, remember the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Notice it's coming out of North Vietnam and then coming back through Laos and Cambodia, refeeding into South Vietnam to keep the war going. Are there any vets? I didn't, did I ask that? Quick summary on the, Nor on, on the Vietnam, Vietnam War. It's when two superpowers decide to go to war against each other in somebody else's country. Think about it. So again, I was doing this presentation and I met a, a naval officer again. I think I'm getting followed by naval officers. But anyway, they told me that there was also a water Ho Chi Minh Trail. And what they were doing, Haiphong is their harbor, they were taking these old Chinese junks and loading them up and then they'd sail down here and then resupply South Vietnam. So I said, well, what, you know, what were you in? I was thinking a destroyer or something. He said, we were in a submarine. I'd never heard of that, right? So I said, what were you doing there? Couldn't, I still couldn't put it together. And he said, what they were doing is they would challenge these junks. They could, they'd see them coming south and they're really low in the water, heavily laden. They would challenge them. Of course, the junks kept going like nothing's going to happen. These guys wouldn't get down just to the surface of the water. And apparently on the bow of a submarine is a cable cutter, which makes you think there's a pretty uh, scary mission right there in itself. But anyway, they have a cable cutter, so that means they must be cutting cables somewhere. And they would take that and they would ram the side of that uh, junk. And it would, they said it broke open wooden, right? It broke open like an eggshell and just, you know, dumped everything down. So he was saying, I said, well, how long were you doing this? The last three years? Are you right down here? Get down there. He says, all kinds of treasures down there. Uh, just truly amazing, I thought. So he said, if you're into scuba, this area. Okay. Um, I remember I said, you know, stealth, surprise, and diversion. Our good friends in the Navy always had three carriers out here, and about 15 minutes before we crossed right in this area, they launched about 70 fighters up and down North Vietnamese coast, northeast of Hanoi, and they were at 10, 20, and 30,000 feet. And they were up there for one thing, to be seen. So guess what? They were seen. They were seen big time. So all the defense radars, especially around Hanoi, Hanoi at that time was probably the most heavily defended city in the world when you think about it, and all Russian stuff, you know, the SAMs, AAA, all radar controlled. It was, it was a tough area up there. So they're going up and down, and all these defense radars were locking in on these guys. We heard later that the, uh, the, the wheels in downtown Hanoi saw all this, and they, made, they jumped to the conclusion, this is an invasion, because they always expected. You remember, we, we could have done it. A couple of battalions of Marines start down there in South Vietnam and, went and march up to the Chinese border, and it would have been over. But we just we, we didn't do it. We were afraid of what Russia and China would think about it, so we were kind of hands off on that. So the, the Vietnamese then, some of them we understand, booked out of there, went up to China. They didn't want to be in town if we had the invasion, because it would have been quick. Others, we heard, uh, went out to the local airport, Noibai, rushed uh, takeoff, and crashed on takeoff. So we did some damage that night we didn't even know about too much later on. So this is all going on. It worked very well. Ewo was quiet. He didn't see anything. He could see some activity out there, but was always looking someplace else. So again, we felt, well, maybe there wasn't compromise. This thing's going to work. 
Now, this is the last probably five miles into Sante, which is right here. Uh, this was our run-in heading, 073. Right about here, we had to leave the helicopters on their own the last three and a half miles, so we gave them the final heading, 073, and then hack. At the word hack, we put the power into the 130, got away from the verbal, got the flaps up to 50. We were now, again, a stabilized airplane. We climbed up to 1,500 feet and proceeded on inbound to Sante. We got right overhead Sante. We dropped the four parachute flares to light up the area so the helicopters could land. They were about two minutes behind us. We did a right descending turn down to about here. We see where it says simulator? Uh, we had boxes full of firecrackers, very simple. Dropped those out. They started going off. And what we were trying to, to, to make happen was that we knew there were a lot of barracks in the uh, Hanoi Sante area with troops, and that's where they were going down on the Ho Chi Minh Trail to get down into South Vietnam. So we didn't want to have them coming up to Sante and you know interrupting our party that was going on there. So these things were going off, and so those barracks apparently unloaded and went down to this battle that never was. And we heard later on they went back out to sea because they were convinced there was a battle there, and they, they said all they found was this uh, confetti from these expended uh, fireworks. That worked nice. Uh, then out here where it says bomb marker, we dropped, probably the first time, two napalm bombs. And it wasn't for offensive purposes. It was to allow, they would, they would come out of the 130, chute opened up, the napalm would get into the vertical, go down, pool, and then ignite, and that would burn for about 45 minutes. And that was for those A1Es to have an orbit point as they're waiting to be called in for close air support. Very simple, and it worked well. So at that point, then we depart. You can see this course back out here. And then we hop into this about a 6,000-foot orbit. And we turned into kind of a radio relay ship. We could talk to the Green Berets on the ground. We could talk back. If you remember uh, Vietnam, they had a Monkey Mountain, which is just outside of Da Nang. That was a big communication center. And then they could talk back to Washington. So it was pretty real time when you're considering the air then. Of, of what was going on all the way back to Washington. And then, of course, after it was all over and done with, uh, we're up there with our ADF, we transmit, and the, the birds there that were coming back out with their ADF, their needles would point to us, so they had a way to come back out and then go back south into uh, Thailand. Now, these are the three orbits I talked about earlier, five F-4s, five F-4s, and then we had five 105s right over, pretty, pretty close overhead to Hanoi. And for the, for the North Vietnamese and, of course, their Russian advisors, that was a big uh, MiG trap. And so the night of the raid, they did not launch any MiGs. Good for us. And later on, we had this all recorded. You could hear the uh, Vietnamese pilots in the airplanes out on the runway begging to be released. And, of course, everything was controlled over there by the ground. They would not release them because they, because with what was going out over the Gulf of Tonkin, they were sure there was an invasion and they were trying to save their MiGs for when, it, when they really needed it. So that was one less threat to, to deal with there. Now that napalm, this is an old T-bird. You got them here in the museum. But uh, what I wanted to point out, this is the uh, tip tank. That's about 13 feet. You can see the pilot's helmet here. It gives you an idea of the relative size of we had two of those that we dropped out that night for the markers for the uh, A1Es. Now, this is uh, the U.S. real estate, Sante, right up here, 
our run-in headings are about here. We did the right descending turn, and we dropped off the uh, uh, firefight simulators in this area, and then, of course, the napalm was further out here to the, uh, to the west. Uh, but th the question usually comes up, there were 10 outlying prison camps in North Vietnam, and the question is, why did you choose Sante? Well, the reason is, if you notice, here's a, a branch of the Red River, had a bridge up here, bridge down here. Uh, I believe the A1Es knocked this one out and the Green Berets knocked this one out. That suddenly turns this area into an island because they're not going to swim across. So, and it worked. And so basically with what was going on there, just about a half an hour, we owned that whole piece of real, real estate that night. They didn't know what was going on. Of course, they're thinking something else is coming in out over the ocean, so they really had no idea that we even cared about our POWs. Remember, they always felt they were forgotten. Well, the Vietnamese thought that, too, and they really believed it. So that's, that's what was going on there. This just gives you a quick idea of, again, the color scheme of the 130s then. And if, you're gonna, if you have a good imagination, there's a, there's a ramp and a door here. That back end of the 130 opens up. It's like the back end of the Holland Tunnel. You know, it's just hollow all the way back. And that's where all the, uh, the, the napalm, the firefight simulators, and, and the parachute flares went out. And as again, I say, it just it gives you an idea where that went out to go down. Now, this is uh, Sante. As I said, the, the three houses there. These were named by the POWs, the Beer Hall, Opium Den, and the Cat House. Now, the reason they named them this way is they could remember. Remember, it's kind of like you've been up all night, you're weak, malnutrition, and you remember these simple names. And to, to this day, if you meet a POW, and he'll say he's at Sante. He won't even say he was at Sante. He was, he was at uh, Camp Hope, not Sante. And then you'd say, well, where were you? And he'll come right back. I was in Beer Hall number six or Cat House number eight. They knew every cell. So when you think about it, they had 24 hours. They really kept close track on everybody on either side who was in the prison. So when they finally released him, they knew who was around. And as they, as they moved the prisoners around the, the, the different uh, prisons, they knew from the last to where they were going who was there and who was accountable for. Good system. Now, as you can see, you can, where the H3 did the landing in here, uh, and that's where they let out the, green, the 14 Green Berets. The, uh, the first, before that H3 did the landing, it was preceded by one of the empty H53s, three Gatlin guns. So he kind of floated across just in front of the H3 and you, you've heard the expression, neutralize the two uh, guard towers. Well, the one guard tower, the one on the south, was so neutralized, it kind of fell in on itself and caught fire. I love the bamboo. And uh, then he just kind of hovered on over here while the H3 did the assault landing. So that pretty well took care of a lot of things going on there. Now, this is the point where I kind of make the hook in the story and the twist of the dramatic turn. And most of you, if you didn't have your hand up on the Sante raid, H3 makes the assault landing. First guy out, he's got a bullhorn. He says, we're Americans. We're here to save you. Keep your head down. We'll be in your cell in just a little bit. Hear how quiet it is right now? That's how quiet it was in that prison at night. He had a sinking feeling. He was expecting either cheering or applauding or come on in, get us, or get me, I'm over here. It was quiet. This is a raid, 116 aircraft, four months, got in there, nobody home. 
They had moved the prisoners about the time we had started putting the raid together. They moved them about six miles up the road. Some of those guys actually heard what was going on down in Sante. They had a good sense of direction. They said, that's over by Sante. I think we just missed our ride home. But they were happy because they hadn't been forgotten. This was proof in the pudding. We had come in there to get them. So this is the one, if you didn't hear about it, this is the one, that's the way it happened. So what to do now? They looked through all the prisons, all the buildings inside here. Nothing, no prisoners. So now they had a dilemma because they knew also on the outside there were quite a few other houses around. So they, before they left, in that 29 minutes, went around and searched each building just to make sure there wasn't one American left somewhere for some reason. That was a big, big fear. Now, this is a painting I found somewhere. I don't know even who the artist was, but uh, this is what it looked like. This was one of the, this was uh, Apple II that landed just on the outside, south side of the prison, offloading his green berets. And those were our flares, and that's about what it looked like that night, they tell me. Boom, out of the night, flares open up, and they're very bright. You know, a million candle power, that, that really lights the night up. While this is going on, the H3 is doing the assault landing inside. This is a painting, and you can see the gentleman over here with the bullhorn. And when you go to reunions and you have some of the green braves there, they're talking names, who, there I am or there you are, and then they'll say, well, you know, actually, you were a little closer here, and this guy was over here a little further. They know exactly to the step where everybody had to be, and they always, it's a team effort. They're covering each other's backside as they go around. But that's it. That's the... Uh, that's the cat house over there, uh, opium den in the beer hall. And notice uh, quarter moon. That was one of the requirements we had to go in there. Had a quarter moon, and it was about 30 degrees off the horizon. And we felt that was just enough that we could see once you got your, uh, your night vision acquired, but yet not be seen. So that worked out. So that gave us basically a one window each month to have all these conditions just right and to have the weather on your side. Now, this is some new stuff I got, great stuff, I think. This is from the North Vietnamese archives. The last guy out of the prison that night, we had satchel charges on the H3. They blew up the H3. So this is what the North Vietnamese found the next morning. That's the H3, what's left of it. Uh, you can see the rotor, the tail rotor blades here. These are uh, puzzled Vietnamese because, keep in mind, they always knew that prison was empty. So you got to think in their mind, what were the Americans doing? Coming here to an empty prison and raising all this problem and trouble? Think about it. We never heard the answer on that one yet. That's still out. But this is one of the pictures they took. Then this is the same looking the other way. That's the cat house over here. Uh, there's that uh, guard building and the main gate over here. And you can see some of the Vietnamese over here in the shadows looking at all this. I always felt when we left the last guy out, sort of take a good American flag on a mask and just stick it right in the middle of the compound. But somebody else said, this is a pretty good statement too. <laughs> now, remember that bullhorn? There it is. Because at that point, you know, it was over. They just left the stuff and went out and got in the, uh, the empty helicopters to go back, back to Thailand. I remember that air crew of three that brought the H3 in to make the assault landing. As soon as that landed, 
they turned into soldiers, right? Their flying was done. So there's their three helmets. Uh, also, you can see here some grenades, and I don't know what these were exactly, some kind of rocket launchers. This was all left behind after we realized the place was empty. They took a picture of this, kind of organized it a little bit. So that was good, again, because they're, they're trying to figure out what was going on here. Now, this is an after action from a uh, SR-71. It's about a day after the raid. Uh, this is Sante right here, Cat House, and the two uh, opium den and the beer hall. And it shows all the damage from what we had done that night, burned out roof damage over here. Now, what I like about this, I don't know if you can see this one you can. One of the H-53s landed here, so you can see all that rice paddy pushed down from their footprints going in and coming back out. Uh, I was down in uh, Florida doing this presentation. When I showed this, guy in the second row jumped up and said, I took that picture. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm an SR-71 driver. I took that picture. I got that picture at home in my, uh, you, you know, the I Love Me wall where you put all your trophies? <laughs> he has one of these. So that was a good reunion there, connecting the dots. So you can see uh, all these outside buildings outside the, the prison that these guys had to check just to make sure there weren't Americans there. So this is another one of those good pictures. Uh, this picture came from a flea market in Connecticut. It was when you know how they have boxes of just pictures and you go through? This one was there for a dollar. And I got another one uh, that shows it was a before action, just before we did the raid, that we were using to figure out what was going on in the prison. Same, uh, same flea market. Back at the time, it would have been a top secret raiding. Okay, this is uh, what, ha what happened after it was all said and done. I went back to Sante in 1994. So the pictures you see here are the pictures I took. And this was the uh, beer hall and the opium den. This is right in the area where the helicopter landed, the H-3. And this uh, is the isolation confinement. I've got a better picture of it. This was, as I say, 1994. Uh, this is that bu same building you saw with the shed and the, the door here. Uh, it's about the size of a telephone booth. Notice there's no ventilation. So our prisoners were being put in there for punishment, right? The three big ones. You didn't bow deep enough to their guards. Now that's a setup right away, right? What's deep enough? The other one was you didn't salute their officers properly. But the real biggie was getting caught communicating. And they would give you out punishment anywhere from a week to a couple of months. They actually, the prisoners named this the tank. As they got in there in the summer, and it's, you know, 105, 110 degrees with the humidity to match that. It was really hot. But our guys always, you know, even if you're a prisoner, you're still trying to out-psych the enemy and resist. And they make them feel like this was a great thing to do, go in the, the tank. And so they were doing that. When I was there, you see this little pan there was a three-legged pig running around, and I figured that's where they were feeding him from. Now, I had an interpreter with me, and I asked him, what do you think happened to the pig? And he said, oh, you know, up here, Vietnam, we have a lot of poisonous snake. Snake got hit on the, lost his leg. And this is where the uh, American humor kicked in. I said, no, you don't understand. That's one of those pigs that was so good, they didn't want to eat them all at one time. <laughs> he, he laughed, too. So, you remember the communication? How many know or heard about the tap code? Wow. Well, that's it. The letter missing is K. 
So that makes it 25, 5 and 5 all the way around. That works very well. And it's kind of a phonetic alphabet. C was used for K. And let's say you wanted to say hi. What they would do, first of all, they'd do the, the uh, uh, tap, 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 tap. And when the guy on the other wall was ready to receive, he'd come back with the two bits, tap, tap. So the next thing he would hear would be two taps down. That got you down on this row. And then it would be a quick tap, tap, tap for the H, and then tap, tap, tap for the I. That was high. And everything was abbreviated, so they could go pretty fast. And usually it was a tin cup that was muffled. And they got very good at this. And that's what they, they heard most of the times. And sometimes the guards would hear that. And if they were being coy, they would not make trouble right away. They'd listen to it. And I understand some of the guards thought it was Morse code. So they're trying to figure out Morse code with this tap code. They tell me the POWs, the gun, ones that were really good, just as you're looking at that now, is the way they could visualize it on the wall. And so as the guy across the wall is tapping to you, you're going down with him and hitting the letters as he's hitting the letters. So it comes back through very quickly. Uh, one of the things they did was church call once a week. And that was basically uh, the CC. So you'd hear a tap, and you'd hear three taps, and then three more taps. That was CC. So that's basically how it worked. Now, when that helicopter sat down, it did actually, in fact, prune this one tree. This was left over. This is John Reynolds, a POW, went back in uh, 98. Uh, and you can see what was left over from that chopper coming down with its blades. It really trimmed this up. It looks like a telephone pole. Just now, it was starting. This is in 98, starting to grow back. So this was that house I called the... Uh, the library it was actually a propaganda den, and, and they, they would take the prisoners in there, and they'd give them little bits of news that they thought was censored, but it was enough that our guys could figure out what was going on in the world. Remember, you're isolated. And, of course, they were trying to convince them that, uh, you know, communism good and capitalism is not good, and our guys just really rolled them over on that. They had a ball in there. What I really want to show you is the, the, the only standing wall when I was there was the north wall. It's basically br uh, bricks with the flying buttress, and then in, in Southeast Asia, they, they put broken glass up on top to discourage you from putting your arm over to try to crawl out. And I, th I think that worked. This was the cat house. And it's, it's starting to, uh, you know, come apart there. But I don't know if you can see, there's, there's a pretty good one there, the iron doors, you know, that were still in there when I was there in 94, all the way across. They tell me now, the day after 2003, a lot of the POWs started to go back and other soldiers to, to see it, and I think they got tired of that. I think they were embarrassed a little bit about it. And so they've, they've recycled everything, and all you have now is just some, uh, some platforms where those buildings uh, once stood. Now, this is the uh, Commandant's residence. This is where the POWs were processed in and out. About the time I took this picture, I noticed these uh, folks coming through in, in green uniforms. I thought they were Army. Turns out they were police. And what had happened after the raid, the government had given the police of Sante, the village, the prison, and they used it for family housing. Nothing too good for them that way, right? So I'm there, and they're getting excited about my camera, and they were pointing at it and shaking their fingers. So I said, this isn't good. So I stopped taking pictures, put the camera back in the car, figuring everything would, you know, freeze over. About that time, my interpreter came up. He said, uh, <laughs> 
we're arrested. We have to go down in the city and see the chief of police. So I said, really? So now I'm starting to think, okay, <laughs> another prisoner situation, right? So they took us down into the uh, big, it was a pretty good-sized police station for a small village, two floors, two stories. Took us up on the second floor, and there was an interrogation room up there, whitewashed, uh, rickety table, just like you see out of Hollywood. It really did. And, of course, the bare light bulb on the frayed cord, all of it. I said, oh, man, this is going to... So the police chief came in, and, and really all he wanted to know, you know, peace, uh, peace had broken out over the country, and what, what are we doing back there now? And so I had a cover story, because I could never admit, you know, what we had done there. We'd done some damage, and I didn't, want, I didn't expect forgiveness on their soil. So I said, I knew a POW, which I did, and I promised him I'd go out and get a picture where he used to live. And so the family part of the Vietnamese accepted that and said, hey, that's fine. Just remember, what you were taking a picture of there was the police chief's house. And I said, oh, okay, I'll make sure when I get this developed, this is before digital, when I get this developed, I'll send them a picture. Well, I still owe him that picture. <laughs> but I got to wondering, why was he concerned I was taking a picture of this place? Well, if you think about it, he's only 20 miles away from Hanoi. That's headquarters for everything, right? And I think he was living above his rank in life as a police chief. Because this is really, it's a duplex. Uh, it's right down the middle. It's a mirror image, both sides. They have a, a porch on the front and the back. You can see it's well, well painted, well taken care of. That's where he lived. So still haven't figured that one out, but we, we, got, out, we got out of the country. We worried we wouldn't get out, but we did get out fine. And they actually shook hands and said, you're welcome back anytime. Just check in here with the police station first. Good enough. Now, the question, why did they move those prisoners? Some people said they knew you were coming. Well, we wouldn't be here today if they knew we were coming, obviously. Plain and simple, you had 10 places you could choose to go in and do a raid. This particular prison ran out of drinking water. See this black spot down here? The early part of 1970, the prisoners knew that they were running out of drinkable water, portable water, and so they convinced the guards let a couple, of, they had one uh, hydrologist, one geologist there, POWs. They convinced the guards, let us go out, the American POWs, and dig you a new well. And that's what you see here. They dug down about 30 feet, never struck water. So they moved them, plain and simple. Nobody knew we were coming, it just happened that way. Now, these are some of the, you know, the, the enemy defenses we were up against, and, and they're all from Russia, from Russia with love. This is the old SA-2 surface-to-air missile. It's two-stage, liquid-driven. These are the control vanes. This is the engine and the warhead up here, what, what gets you, you know, at night. And this is the one we call the, affectionately, the uh, flaming telephone pole. Well, if you see that at night, that's about what it looks like. This is the same model that shot down Gary Powers over Russia. Just about, it goes up 60,000 feet, Mach 2, pretty good, pretty, pretty fast missile. So we, the night of the raid, we, we kind of estimated they shot about 30 to 35. And none of them were radar controlled. They were just like a you know, BB trying to hit metal flying through the area. They did come close. They, they, they came close proximity to a 105. And it put shrapnel through the wing enough that he was just running out of fuel quicker and he was burning it. Tried to get back over layouts to hit a tanker and flamed out. So those two stepped over the side. And so the empty helicopters coming out were able to pick them up. So we didn't get to use the Fulton uh, Skyhook recovery system. <laughs> All right, the MiG-21. 
another good one. This is a, just kind of a side note. Notice this out here on the wing. Looks a lot like our Sidewinder. This is back in the 60s and 70s. It's their atoll. It's, I think, identical to our Sidewinder. So industrial espionage was alive and well even then. I point to the nose here. That's 14 stars. You know what the stars represent? One American shot down for each star. What happens when you get five stars? Designated ace. And that, by the way, all the countries in the world that have fighters have agreed. You shoot down five planes, you're designated an ace. Except the North Vietnamese took it one step further. When their pilots reached Aceton, they cut special orders declaring them a hero pilot. Now, when I, when I was up in Hanoi and went out there, I was trying to find out that office that was doing cutting it, but they've, they've since closed that office because none of their planes are flying. So I missed that opportunity. Anyway, uh, all the MiGs up there, uh, I think what you're looking at here is, is propaganda because we didn't have much trouble with the MiGs. It was the automated SAMs and the, and the radar-controlled AAA. That, that's what really got us. But every one of them, and some as many as 20, and some say, well, a lot of... You know, either, you know, a lot of pilots flew it, and I don't believe that. I just believe this is, this is propaganda. Even down when there was an Air Force base south of Hanoi went out to, and every one of their MiGs had a lot of stars on the nose. This is, that was, by the way, that was in their Peace Garden in downtown Hanoi. That's where they have all their kind of collection of the things they've shot down through the years during the war. B-52 parts, Navy planes, Air Force planes. This is AAA. Just to give you an idea, that's uh, the two there, and they get those set up. They're normally radar controlled. This one is not. But this one was dangerous in that, you see, it's, it's a mobile one. It's not fixed base. So you go in there one night, and a couple of nights later, they can move those around very quickly. And where you think you have a safe path to get through when you're, as we used to say, tiptoeing through the tulips, these guys would grab you. Now, this is the crew of Cherry One, and always get a question, you know, which one is you? So if I knew I was going to live this long, I'd probably be taking better care of myself, right? <laughs> now, this is a little thing up in Boston. It's a big uh, gas, gas storage tank. It's about 70 feet high. And it's, uh, it was, at the time they did it, it was a white you know, tank. So they figured, let's just do something here. And so it's the first commercial, it's the largest commercial painting in, in America as far as it had. And if you notice, can anyone see Ho Chi Minh in the blue stripe? Well, I'll help you. And I'll really help you. Now, eyebrows, eyelids, nose, pursed lips, scraggly beard. And that's all the commuters going into Boston see that every morning. That's the Ho Chi Minh Memorial gas tank. <laughs> now, the lady who did this was a nun, Corita Kent. You can just about make out her name there. I never got to interview her because uh, she must have had some uh, baggage herself. She committed suicide in 72. So, so much for that one. Now, I do this just because it, the technology allows me to do this. I like this so much. Okay. Now, quiz time. What's the name of the city here? What did you say? Oh, I didn't talk about cities before, did I? But you can figure it out. When you have a lot of money... Those are water towers that look like Christmas tree ornaments. Some people say, well, that's uh, Baghdad. It's, it's not Baghdad. Kuwait City. And what I'm really showing you here, look at the 130 leading helicopters. This was about five years ago. The true spirit, 
proud tradition of the Sante Raid is alive and well today. They're still using that for getting some of these guys in and around. Now, if you weren't taking notes, I was, and we'll have them out here in the, in the lobby. It's, it's about 70 pictures, and after 30 years, I decided to put all this down because there's a lot of urban myth that grows up around it. So this is our real story. We're sticking to it because that's the way it went down. 